Well, welcome here. Really great to see you. Uh, you'll want your Bibles. We're going to jump right into our text. We're going to read it off the top. But before we go, I want to just share one little story. Uh, many of you will have heard Patrice Nagant, who spoke here back uh, early December, uh, church planting leadership from Quebec. And I want to just tell you a cool little story of how God works in his sovereignty. Uh, the weekend that Patrice was here, a woman from Quebec also happened to be here. She grabbed Patrice and she said, you need to meet my friend. He's just come to faith in Jesus and he owns the largest metaphysical bookstore chain in all of Quebec. He leads these uh, workshops that have up to 25,000 people showing up to their displays and all that. So long story short, Patrice went back to Quebec and he is connected with this young guy who owns this series of bookstores who have become a Christian. And this weekend, they are having what used to be called the metaphysical wellness uh, campaign or uh, display. They're now calling it simply spiritual well-being and inviting people to come into what used to be their new age bookshop. And one of the tables set up is Patrice and his wife, Cindy, are there with a table simply offering prayer for people as they come through those doors. So that was happening Saturday, 11 to 6, Sunday, 11 to 6. So if you think of them, uh, would you pray for them? What a cool story, right? How God knits things together. So anyway, grab your Bibles. Uh, we are gonna just pick up where we left off. We are diving right into the middle of Jesus' crucifixion trial and headed toward the cross. And I wanna read the text, and then we'll look at a couple themes from this text. So we left it last week, Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? Jesus had declared himself the king of truth. Uh, Pilate sort of sneers back at him, what is truth? And then he goes out and he says, I find no guilt in this man. And then he says this in verse 39 to the religious leaders, but you religious leaders have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. For then, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was now the day of preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king 
but Caesar. So he delivered them, him over to them to be crucified. So last week, we left off this story with Pontius Pilate grilling Jesus around this question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you know what? My kingdom is not a kingdom like you would expect, not a kingdom of the world. I'm not raising an army. And whatever that conversation was like, Jesus declaring himself to be the king of truth, Pilate is convinced that there is nothing here to be worried about, that whatever kind of king and kingdom this man is raising, he is not a threat to the Roman Empire, and, and yet he picks up on that title, King of the Jews, and he continues to use it on through this conversation to poke and to annoy the religious leaders who have brought Jesus in these accusations. And even in the final words there in chapter 19, verse 14, behold your king, he says to them. And in perhaps the most damning statement in this particular story is that reply, we have no king but Caesar from the Jewish religious leaders. So, those of you who follow politics might remember, particularly Christians in politics, might remember a a, a man named John Ashcroft some 20 years ago. He was a Missouri state governor and later a senator, and he was nominated by George W. Bush to be the attorney general of the U.S., and in his confirmation hearings, as is common when these people are nominated, is they dig back through everything they can find on an individual, every speech, anything that they've written, and so Ashcroft had given a speech at a Christian university a couple years earlier, and he had grabbed a soundbite out of the 1700s as part of that speech. They brought it forward of what made America uh, the great nation that it was to live in. And it, it is this quote, a slogan of the American Revolution, which was so distressing to the emissaries of the king was the line, we have no king but Jesus. Tax collectors came asking for that which belonged to the king and colonists frequently said, we have no king but Jesus. Jesus. Now, it was a longer speech, but that one little line, we have no king but Jesus, uh, ignited a firestorm around this debate. Larry King interviewed the president of this Christian university. Political opponents pounced on Ashcroft's Christian Pentecostal upbringing, saying he is obviously unfit to hold the highest position of judicial authority in the land. And one columnist castigated him by basically saying, you know what, remember that revolution, my friend? Remember, go back in time, it was not just that we didn't want the king of England, we want no king at all. And the question that our text pushes us to is this, is Jesus Christ truly king? Because as Christians, and according to the scriptures, we believe that he was not just king of the Jews, king of the nations, but ultimately king of the cosmos, the universe, king of kings and lord of lords. We believe that there is coming a day when King Jesus will visibly and personally in the flesh rule and reign here on earth. And, and regardless of your view of the end times and the millennial theories, there's, there's four major millennial theories that evangelicals uh, love to wrestle and argue with, but all four of them agree at the final equation. The end of the day, there is just one king sitting on the throne, and his name is Jesus. So here's where we're going if we get to the end of the message. That there are millions of Christians around the world who will give a nod to a theological statement, to a creed, to a confession that would in one way, shape, or form declare Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. But they live their daily lives as though they themselves were actually the king of their life.
And what this text is going to press into us is Jesus' rightful kingship at the question, if he is truly king, then is he my king? Is he your king? And so at the end of the message, we're going to face this decision question that we will either crucify Jesus or we will be crucified with Jesus. Either we will kill King Jesus or we will die with King Jesus, but we can't do both. Either he's king or he's not. So we're going to run through the text. It's a pretty straightforward text. We're going to just look briefly at the story and the two primary characters, the two primary roles that we see in the story. We're going to look at Pilate briefly. We're going to look at the religious leaders briefly. And then we're going to spend more time at the the macro story behind this story, the, the story that this text is telling us and unpacking for us, the story of the lamb and the story of the king. So that's where we're headed. So let's look just briefly at Pilate. Uh, we, we talked a bit about him last weekend. But Pilate, who I want to suggest did his best in the circumstances he finds himself in. We know from the historical records, Josephus and other historians, that he was a reluctant adjudicate. He, he didn't really want to be in the role he was in. I mentioned that last weekend. I think he didn't like this posting that he had been given out this in this outback place called Judea. He didn't like his job, and nor did he like this people. Uh, He had a nice palace over at the seaside. Caesarea Philippi is where his home was. And and if I can imagine being in his place, I think that he far enjoyed the sea breezes and the sunset over the Mediterranean than being in Jerusalem. But part of the job was keeping the peace. And so at this high festival week, he had to be in Jerusalem. But we need to give him credit that he tried his best to release Jesus. So as we were reading the text, you probably noticed that three times he said, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. In fact, if you layer the four gospel accounts on top of each other and look at the timeline, he tried no less than six times to release Jesus, to get him off the hook. Luke's gospel will tell us when he heard that he was from Galilee, that he sends him to see Herod. He tries to pass the buck. Herod also says he's not guilty, he's innocent, and sends him back. And when he comes back, Pilate says, okay, I'll punish him and then I'll release him. Which is interesting in and of itself, right? He's not guilty, he's innocent, and yet I'll punish him and release him. So, three different types of floggings or scourgings. The text here says in chapter 19, verse 1, that he flogged him. There were three types. There was in Latin, the fustigatio, which was a less severe crime. And basically it meant we're going to rough the guy up a bit. We're going to teach him a lesson. We're going to smack him around a little bit. And, And in some cases, it literally just meant a verbal rebuke, a verbal tongue lashing. But we're going to rough you up a bit for this minor crime. The second level was the flagellatio. You love all these Latin terms? It was more of a brutal flogging for more serious crimes, and it involved a cane or a rod being struck over the back of the criminal. And the most severe was the verba radio. This is what the Romans were famous for, where a victim would be stripped, he would be tied to a post with his arm stretched out so that the back was taunt, and he would be whipped by several torturers, two or more, with a whip called the cat of nine tails the leather that was divided out into nine strips and on the end of each end of the the nine were pieces of iron or lead or stone 
that were meant to pulverize the flesh, literally to tenderize it. And on other ends of that was uh, open uh, pieces of bone or broken pottery totally intended to grab hold of the flesh and to rip it and to tear it. And so ultimately the back and the veins would be exposed and in some cases literally the organs would be exposed. In fact, many people died just from this type of flogging. And it was specifically designed to weaken a prisoner who was facing crucifixion. Because through the weakness and the loss of blood, they wouldn't hang on that cross forever. They would die quicker. It was almost only reserved for those who were going to be crucified. How many beatings did Jesus endure is an interesting question. The commentators struggle with because Pilate said, I'm going to flog him and release him. So it certainly wasn't this great kind of flogging. And yet later we know that he was stripped and that he was beaten. Pilate goes on to extend the olive branch, I want to say. He's like, how about we call it a win-win? I'll release this guy based on this uh, condition that you know this week of the year, I give you one of the criminals of your choice. So you can spin the story however you want to spin the story. So you can say that Jesus was indeed guilty, but I let him off the hook because I've released a prisoner to you. And and then I get off the hook because I find no fault in this guy, but they were going to have nothing to do with this olive branch that Pilate extended. And so the question, of course, was Pilate innocent in what happened that day? And the answer, of course, is no, he was not, because it was by his decree that Jesus was crucified. But we need to note that he did his best to set Jesus free. The Jewish leaders, however, did their worst. Last week, we talked about the fact that they wanted him dead, and they wanted him dead by crucifixion. Only the Romans could crucify him. So they rallied false accusations. But here in chapter 19, verse 7, we see their true motivation that he claimed to be the son of God. He's making himself out to be God. And they had talked about this three other times earlier in John's gospel. In John chapter 5, he called God his father, they say. He's making himself equal with God. In John chapter 8, he used the phrase, before Abraham was, I am. Am. He, he grabbed that title, the great I am. I am who I am. And he, he claimed the divine name of God. In John chapter 10, he, he says, I'm doing my father's work and I'm the good shepherd. And then he uses this very interesting phrase. He says, the ones the father has given to me, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then in the very next sentence, he says, the ones who are the fathers, no one can snatch out of the father's hand. The son's hand and the father's hand look like they are one and the same and they pick up stones to stone him because they recognize he is claiming to be God. This text is dripping with irony. We mentioned it last week. They accuse Jesus of stirring up the crowds, but in this story, it is they, the religious leaders, who are actually stirring up the crowds. They're stirring up a riot calling for Jesus' crucifixion. The release of Barabbas is also ironic when you think it through. They were claiming that Jesus was stirring up the crowds, raising an army, raising a riot. But here is Barabbas who had been convicted. He was an insurrectionist. If anybody had raised an army and stirred up the crowds, it was Barabbas. He had pulled together a group of hooligans and they had had accomplished at least one assassination, Matthew's gospel tells us. And he is now awaiting the death sentence. Finally, These men manipulate, and I want to almost say bullied or blackmailed Pilate through the use of that little phrase, a friend of Caesar's. Now, we can read right past it, 
But it would have made sense in that moment to Pilate in a very particular way because another friend of Caesar's had just been put to death. You see, there was another leader, historians tell us this, a leader named Lucius Sejanus who served Rome for 17 years and he was an intimate friend and consort with Emperor Tiberius and he was given the honorary title friend of Caesar. But what Caesar didn't know is that behind the scenes, Sejanus is rallying an opposition rallying a coup against the government, and that coup is uncovered. Tiberius finds out that his so-called friend is trying to throw him over, and so he has he and all of his followers executed, and that execution took place in AD 31, literally just a few months before this trial of Pilate. So when they say, listen up, Pilate, you know what happens to a friend of Caesar's who is not truly a friend of Caesar's, he would have known very well what they were talking about. So that's the main storyline, and it's pretty simple. The main human roles that were being played, Pilate doing his best, the the religious leaders doing their worst. But there is a greater story that's being played out underneath this story. And it's the story of the lamb and the story of the king. And it's significant that as Jesus talks to Pilate, he alludes to the greater plan of salvation that's being worked out because Jesus is making it very clear that there is only one person who is in charge of these events right now. He, he says there in verse 11, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, you're not in charge of these events at all. You have no authority to put me to death. The only authority you have has been given to you by God himself. And it's an echo back We see a couple other illustrations in John 18, just a couple weeks ago, the reference to Jesus' crucifixion and being lifted up, that it was to fulfill Jesus' own words three times throughout the gospel of John, he had referred to his death, that he would be lifted up, referring to the kind of death he would die on a Roman cross. In John 10, he talked about being the good shepherd and laying his life down for the sheep. And and look what it says there. I am the good shepherd. I will lay my life down for the sheep. And then verse 18 says this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. See, here in this context, Jesus is referring to the one who has delivered him over to death. And commentators debate, was it Judas? Was it Caiaphas? Was it representative of all the Sanhedrin? Probably all of the above. But as you trace that word through the New Testament, it is a fascinating story when you see that it was God himself who offered himself for our salvation. So just stay with me because this is really rich. So we're going to go on this little journey. Just walk with me. When we get over to Acts chapter 3, Pentecost preaching, they, they say to these same religious leaders, Peter preaching, this Jesus whom you delivered and denied, God has made him both Lord and Christ. There's that phrase, you delivered and you denied. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, will ask a question. How is it that we get things right with God? How is it that sinful humans can be counted righteous? And he says, in the same way that all the Old Testament saints were counted righteous, just like Abraham, he had faith in God and the righteousness of God was credited because of his faith. So it goes on to say this, righteousness, it, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and here's the key phrase, who was delivered up, very same phrase, 
for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up. You're like, okay, yes, I get it. Jesus was delivered up, but keep reading. In Romans 8, a much-loved chapter of Romans starts with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and ends with who can separate us from the love of Christ. And in the middle of it, it says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but here's the phrase, gave him up. In the original language, it's the same word. It could be translated, he delivered him up. God gave the son up. God delivered the son up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then go further, Galatians chapter two, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live in faith by, by faith in the son of God. Now look at the phrase, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the very same phrase. Jesus actually delivered himself. God delivered him. Jesus delivered himself. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God, beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Christ gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. Now, men, some of you know that later in that chapter, that very same phrase is used when it speaks to husbands. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and he delivered himself up. That's our job as husbands. That's a hard word. It's why I didn't put it on the screen. (laughs) Husbands, lay your life down for your wife. And the story behind the story is that God is fully in control of the events of that day. That Jesus was a willing and active participant in laying his life down, that this was God's plan. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then look at this last phrase. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, what we're reminded of in this story is the macro story of the gospel. The story of this book from cover to cover. The story of God's creation. God's beautiful, good creation. The story of our rebellion, our treason against our good God. The story of redemption that he made a way for us to be made right and the hope of ultimately restoration, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the gospel in just four words. That's the entire Bible in just four words. We're reminded of this story. You remember at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist is out baptizing. He sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that statement, John the Baptist is repeating a central message of the Christian gospel, a distinction that separates Christianity from every other world religion in that statement that God would make a way to deal with the sins of humanity. It's why we say so often that salvation is of the Lord or salvation is the Lord's. That the weight of sin and our rebellion, our treason against our creator, the penalty for that high treason against the king of the universe that we have all committed is eternal death or eternal separation from God unless that penalty can be paid. 
unless that debt can be paid down. And so what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is simply this. Every other world religion will tell you, here's what you must do to be made right with God. Here's your list. If you do these things, you can earn and merit the favor of God. And so Islam has the five pillars. Buddhists have their eightfold path and on and on the list go. But at the end of the day, every world religion will tell you uh, with this thought, you must earn the favor of God. You must do enough, pray enough, serve enough, give enough, do penance enough. Hopefully you've done enough good at the end of the day to outweigh all the bad you've done and God will welcome you into his heaven based on your good works. And Christianity tells you up front, it's actually impossible. It's impossible. You cannot make yourself right with God. It's what sets Christianity apart. And central to Christianity is this amazing truth that God in his mercy allows a substitute. That God in his mercy will do for us something that we cannot do for ourselves. That he himself will pay the penalty for our sin. And if you want the giant theological word, if you want the big doctrinal category, it is these three words, penal, substitutionary, atonement. And I get it. Those are big words. They're theological words. We don't use them every day. But that's what this doctrine is about. The word atonement simply means how do you get things right? How do you set the record straight? How do we make the universe right again? How do we atone The word penal, we understand it. We have a criminal code. We have a penal code. It has to do with punishment for wrongs that have been done. And the word substitute is self-explanatory. We all understand that word. And so you come back to the picture of the Lamb of God, and John opens with this phrase. He takes away the sins of the world, and there are two primary festivals in the Jewish calendar that are focused on a little lamb or a little goat as a substitute the day of Passover and the day of atonement. And we talked about the Passover last week because this is the Passover week and the 10th and final plague in Egypt when the angel of death was gonna take the firstborn from every household. And God said, if you take a spotless lamb and you put its blood on the the posts and the, the lintel of your doors, the angel of death will pass over your home. And so Jesus becomes the true and better Passover lamb. But the Jewish people had another day, another high and holy day, the Day of Atonement, about six months later, where there was a ceremonial cleansing of the temple. And on that one day and that one day only, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to cover over the sins of the people. And he would go into the holy place with the blood of a young goat and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover the sins of the nation for one more year to appease the wrath of God. And in Hebrews, when it recounts this as Jesus, as our high priest, it says of Jesus that he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. In other words, Jesus becomes the true and better sacrifice of the atonement. But what's interesting is that high priest comes back out of the Holy of Holies, There is a second goat in this story. And in a symbolic measure, the high priest takes his hands and he puts them on the head of that goat 
and symbolically lays all of the sins of the nation, all of the sins of that last year since the last day of atonement are placed on the head of that goat and that goat is taken out in the wilderness and chased away. It's called Azazel. It's a word that's only used once in the Bible in Leviticus 16. It's a compound Hebrew word that commentators say literally means the goat away, the goat away. In other words, the scapegoat is our English modern translation. And when Jesus goes to Calvary, the sins of the world are placed on his head, your sin and mine. Now, this is really cool, and you, we could mine this for a long time. There are so many images, but three I'll just mention in the story that tied Jesus to the scapegoat. Those goats, were told by Jewish tradition, were tethered with a scarlet rope. And when that goat was chased out into the wilderness, before they let it go, they took that scarlet rope and they wrapped it around its horns just in case that goat might wander back into the camp, that it would be marked with a scarlet wreath around its head. And you think of Jesus with the crown of thorns and the scarlet blood dripping down his forehead. The word for scapegoat, literally goat away, that appears in Leviticus 16. And the idea is clear that this animal would carry the sins of the people away. And when Pilate asks, what do you want me to do with Jesus? The crowd cries out, crucify him for sure. But before they say crucify him, what did they say? Away, away. Were, were they thinking of the scapegoat? Send him away. But sure enough, there's this interesting sovereign coincidence in the text. And finally, that scapegoat was sent outside the camp a symbol of the rejection and desolation placed on the head of that goat. And Hebrews says this, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Interesting corollaries, are they not? Such richness in this text. And you say, what's happening here? Really, what's going on? And what's happening is they are preparing to crucify the king to make the king the scapegoat. And, and it might be tempting for you and me to say, you know what, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. But the truth of the matter is, we actually were there. We were there. Because the scripture makes it very clear that when Jesus paid the penalty for that sin, he was paying for sins past, present, and future. Future sin, your sin and my sin. Uh, we, we sing this modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love, and there's a line in that hymn that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was your sin and my sin that took him to the cross. It's what theologians call the great exchange, that the innocent one is punished in place of the guilty one. Uh, the righteous life of Jesus is exchanged for the sinful life of his children. So in other words, when the father looks at you and me, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Is that not good news? Uh, yes, it is good news. Amen. There you go. I'll say my own amen then. There you go. It's the miracle of the gospel. That sinful humanity can be counted right before God. So the question is, how about you and me? Because it's really easy uh, to think that we wouldn't have crucified our king back then, but we have to ask the question, what about today? Do we crucify him all over again by claiming that we are king of our own lives? Have we truly made him king of our lives? And inside the church, we love to talk about Jesus as king. And so whether it is Kanye, Jesus is king, or your old school, Handel's Messiah, either case will work. 
to lift us up to the glories of our King, to talk about King Jesus. And, and Christians get pumped up when we talk about the King, do we not? So like 40 years ago, a black preacher named S.M. Lockridge, he pastored the same church in San Diego for over 40 years. S.M. Lockridge, interesting name, his name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. What a great name. And he preached a sermon in the late 80s entitled Amen, and that sermon went viral in whatever way sermons went viral back in the day. And it was a sermon based on the book of Revelation, and it was titled simply Amen. And that when Jesus is declared King of kings and Lord of lords, and when we have said our forever and ever and ever and ever and evers, we will finally get to say one big great amen. And in the middle of that very long sermon, he did a six-minute rant on the person of Jesus. And I, I'm sure that many of you have heard this before, but we're going to play just three minutes of it. Just three minutes of, the, the audio is not great, it's back from the 80s, but just listen to this rant about King Jesus and who he truly is. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduring strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He caught and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. 
Amen, hey? They don't preach like that anymore, do they? And we love that kind of thought. We get caught up in the emotion of a declaration like that, and, and rightly so. It stirs us. It moves us, it challenges us, it rebukes us, it comforts us. But the question is, is he my king? Is he my king? And here's where we got to land the plane because one of Jesus' most sobering lines in the Sermon on the Mount is this line near the end of that message when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's got to be king. And it's easy to come to a text like this and conclude, of course he's king. We have no king but Jesus. But the question is, is it true? Because there can only be one king in our life, and either we will join with these people, crucifying the king of the universe, or we will die with him. We will be crucified with him. And there are millions of people who salute to some confession of faith and yet live as though they are king. And it's, it's critical to our understanding of the gospel because we rightly say that salvation is a free gift. We rightly say it is undeserved merit that is credited to our account. We rightly say that you can do nothing to earn the favor of God. But the flip side of that is equally true. That this free gift will cost you everything. In fact, in order to gain the free gift, you have to lay down everything. You have to give up everything. You have to finally reach the end of yourself, the end of your rope. It's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit. We finally come to the end of ourselves saying, I'm trying to earn my way in. I understand I can't pray enough, give enough, serve enough. I look at the face in the mirror and I see a slave to sin. I know that I'm given to gluttony and lust and envy and greed and anger and laziness and pride. And I know that I tend to be fearful, that I can't really trust you, God, that you're actually going to do and be who you say that you're going to do and be. I'm not generous as I should be with my resources because I'm afraid I'll run out. I don't really trust you that you're my provider. I understand what the Bible's sexual ethic says. It's, it's pretty basic. But there's this relationship that I just can't let go of. And we look in the mirror and like Apostle Paul, we say, who will save me? What a wretched man I am. And so we finally take our hands off. And we crawl up on that altar and we offer our lives in its entirety to our king. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine will the glory be. And so, Lord, now you own it all. You own my time. You own my talents. You own my treasures. My family belongs to you. My possessions belong to you. My body belongs to you. I have signed over the ownership papers to you because there's only one king. We have just one king, and his name is Jesus. Stand together with me. I want to pray for you. Also, Lord, I thank you how sweet it is for us to be able to gather and look into your word and to be reminded of the macro story that you have done all that is necessary for us to be made right with you, that in your mercy and your grace, you looked down and you saw that we could not solve this mess on our own. 
And so you willingly gave yourself. You allowed yourself to be delivered over that we could do our very worst, that you would step into the path of God's wrath in our place. And God, we have to look at that and say the only response is to rightly say that you gave yourself for us and we will give ourselves to you, that we will lay our lives down, that we will declare that you truly are the King of kings and Lord of lords and not just King of the universe, but that we ask you to be King of our lives. So Lord, we ask this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.